So it's October 2nd. It's 2019. Our message this evening is Fountain to the Nations. Anytime I look out from this pulpit and I see this many families that are struggling with sickness, this many families that are called in to work late, this many families with cars that are broken down, this many families with unexpected hospital-like emergencies, I say, oh, yeah, devil, bring it on. Because I know that we're going to see an incredible outpouring of God's Spirit. Would you like to see that? Would you like to be that? There's so many amazing things that are going to happen seven days from now. We are one week Seven days away from the One Association Conference beginning. And the Vincents are already here. They were the furthest, and so they came first. That is a full price mentality. Tonight, we're going to be going over the seventh core principle. I want to put the seven core principles of LCM on the screen so that you can see it and you know what exactly we are talking about. When you look at this and you see foundational transformation, this is a life so radically born again that everybody notices. This is not a gradual slide in the kingdom, a better improvement. This is like a corpse getting out of a coffin in full view of people. That is foundational to our ministry. One life changes and it is so transformed it touches everything. The second one, full price. There is an attitude when you have been brought from death to life that says nothing gets in our way. No cost is too high. If there's a price, I want to pay it. That just shows me how much Jesus is actually worth to me. This does something. It begins to spread to our families. And the message about family function where Pastor Piro was saying, get in the truck. You learn to bring the new life to your family, the function of your family through shalom. You all get moving in one direction. We moved on to fiery faith as opposed to today's fairy faith. We found out that fiery faith shows up in your feet. It shows up everywhere you go and it's contagious. What then has happened in our family starts to spread to the nations. There has to be a full gospel proclamation. You can't share the parts that you like and not the parts that you don't like. You can't avoid the spirit and only engage the intellect. It has to be the entire proclamation. Then our last service. Wow. Our last service was favor for Israel. If you don't think that that message needs to be preached, well, we posted it on YouTube And the very first response was a string of profanities and anti-Semitic statements. We debated whether to delete it or not, because to us it's kind of a badge of honor. You know, the people that live in trailers and wear tinfoil hats come out of the woodworks when it comes to Israel. We stand in favor of Israel. We will stand in favor of Israel because God favors Israel. Tonight, we're covering Fountain to the Nations. One of the things that you may not be aware of as we identified these seven principles is that they came from Judah surveying 17 years of sermons. He grew up in the ministry, and 
He just went through them and was trying to kind of bring to life in a concise way what it is that has made LCM LCM. He and I were sitting in a place that serves, well, it doesn't serve Kool-Aid. And um, we were riding on a certain kind of napkin. Some people would call it a cocktail napkin. And we started to write down what he had found looking through 17 years of ministry. Our goal was to see if we could codify, kind of consolidate, maybe bring into concentrated form what it means to be LCM. We did that for a lot of reasons. One of them is for some of you new families that are trying to figure out what are these crazy bearded wonders all about. What is important for you to know is that we didn't gerrymander the results. We didn't try to organize them in a certain order. As they came up in our preaching, we wrote them down. The only thing that we really did was because we knew that we were going to preach it, we put it in an alliteration. In other words, we made everything begin with F so that it might be something that would be easier to remember. But we didn't monkey with the order. We didn't change anything. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through a few things together tonight because your mind's about to be blown. I know mine was. I didn't find this out till about an hour and a half ago. Don't you love it when the Lord surprises you with a revelation? Let's begin in Romans 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 14. Say there when you're there. Man, Chris. Romans 2, 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Get what Paul is speaking about. People who were not given the law are doing by nature the things that the law requires. That requires a fundamental transformation in your nature. Because I can assure you, that no lost man does the things that are required by the law based on his unregenerate nature. But when a man is born again, even if he has not written something that God wrote because God has written upon his heart, it begins to show up. The, the law, the Torah of God, it's right. It's holy. It's spiritual. It's good. Romans 7.12 and 7.14 says that. The thing is, is that we were not raised with the benefit of a culture defined by the Torah. I mean, there's only one man in here that was raised in a Torah-observant environment in Israel. That makes the rest of us just goyim. Bacon-eating goyim. Psalm 147, 19 through 20. Don't, you, don't, you can if you want. Put it on the screen if you're that fast. He's revealed His Word to Jacob, His laws and decrees to Israel. He's done this for no other nation. They do not know His laws. Who is the one nation on the planet that God gave His Torah to? That wasn't America. God bless America, but He did not bless us with instituting the Torah for us to cover, for us to live in, for us to shape our culture. In fact, we borrowed, but it was not given to us. And yet... When you are truly led by the Spirit, it shows up in the way that the principles of the Torah show up in your daily life. 
when you don't know what it says, but you love the Lord enough to be seeking His heart, you find yourself walking in the truth that the Torah teaches. In fact, Romans 8.14 says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Get this then. The Torah is an expression of the Father's heart. That's what it is. And Deuteronomy 5.29 says that. It says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to follow me. He gave them the Torah because he wanted them to have his heart. Psalm 119 furthers the whole idea. It's light to my eyes. It's life to my soul. It's sweeter than honey. It's better than silver. It's God's heart. When a son, somebody say son, son. is led by the spirit of his father, the son's actions begin to mimic his father. See, I don't have to explain to my children everything. They've been watching me enough to just try to do what they see me doing. They don't always know why. They certainly don't understand all of the details, but they want to imitate it. Maybe this is why Galatians 5.25 says what it says. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, charismatics, you think that that just means keeping your ear to the ground to the Spirit, and, and that is certainly important, but the proof that you are actually being led by the Spirit is when you show yourself to be in step with Him. How would you know? The Word of God is a demonstration of what the steps of the Spirit look like. See, the Spirit will lead you, but the Word records men who were led. And you can compare what you are being led into to what other men have been led into. And you can see if you were in step. The Spirit and the Word, they always agree with each other. There is no contradiction. Mark 12, 24 teaches that concept and most of you are familiar with it. I want to show you one of the many ways that I know for absolute certain that this house is being led by God's Spirit. We wrote down those seven core principles that have made LCM who it is, what it is, and we wrote them on a bar napkin. Her goal in writing them was to see if we could kind of quantify and define this unique thing that is happening here. The Spirit highlighted to us what to write. And we wrote them down with no idea what we were writing. Tonight, as we go over this seventh core principle, I want to show you what the Lord spoke to me just two hours ago. I was frustrated. I was like, Lord, I know you have a good word for us tonight. And it's important. It's important to me that we do right by your people. Would you help me? The room got quiet for a minute. I heard people coming in through the garage. They're walking towards the pastor's office. And I was, I was tempted to start scratching my skin. Like, I just need a minute. And I looked at our seven core principles. And I saw it. I want to show you what the Lord showed us. Could we put this? Foundational transformation is Pasak. It's when the nation came out and fundamentally became something new. They were covered under the blood of the Lamb, a brand new nation. Full price. Full price is unleavened bread. It's when your whole family says, I don't care what I throw out. I don't care what I lose. Whatever it takes, Lord. As I moved forward to it, I went, wow. 
family function. It is first fruits. It's the very first thing that shows up when a life is radically transformed. The whole family starts to be pushed in a new direction. The first fruit of your salvation is your family. I said fiery faith. What's the next feast, Lord? Shavuot. Oh my God, fire fell from heaven. It fell from heaven, a fiery faith. And then how could we not see that Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, is the full proclamation? How could you not see it? Favor Israel. Where does that fall out? On their day of atonement. God will favor Israel. All Israel will be saved. Fountain to the nations then. Fountain to the nations is Sukkot. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. But what is so important that you understand. Sometimes the Spirit makes you look like a fool. He'll make you do things that are so foolish in the eyes of men that you feel like you're being crucified. But every once in a while, He makes a fool look like a genius. I was sitting riding with my son on a bar napkin. And we just scribbled out what we saw in the sermons. And I did not know till an hour and a half ago that we were writing a Gentile version of the Feast of Israel that have defined our church. When we who do not have the law do by nature the things required in the law, we are showing that we are sons of God. We are showing that we are walking in step with the Spirit. The way that He leads us is in agreement with the way He's always led everyone. Oh, church, you should be encouraged in that. Your hunches are not your own anymore. Your gut feeling is not your own anymore. You are indwelt by the mighty Spirit of God. And He will lead you as a son of God. Israel set the pattern. I didn't. It's important to understand that. The foundational transformation that happened in my life and happened in Wade's life and happened in Matt's life. It was thousands of years after God did it to a whole nation. They are the older brother. We are the little brother. They are the pace setter. And we are following in their footsteps. Israel set the pattern as the original fountain to the nations that we're going to talk about. All we have done is walk in the spirit as Gentiles. And he has led us Straight into what the word clearly says. By the way, our one association conference this year, it takes place on Sukkot. I just thought I would let you know that. As we begin to cover our text tonight, and I'm going to try to move expeditiously, but I'm not going to sacrifice not one pearl that God's given me. So I'll try not to keep you here all night, but I kind of think you're going to get excited enough about this that you wouldn't care if I did. I want to turn to Psalm 36. Let's go to Psalm 36 and verse 9. I want you to keep this passage in your mind as we cover everything else. Psalm 36 and verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The God of Israel is a fountain of life. When you are in the Father... You see his desire. You see what he desires. In his light, 
you begin to see light. When we talk about a fountain to the nations tonight, understand it is what his eye is on. It's what he wants. We're only describing something that he wants and he revealed it to a nation before us. With that in mind, Let's camp in Ezekiel 47 for a little while. When you get there, I'll leave you there for quite a few verses. So it's worth going to and not just reading on a screen. Ezekiel 47. Oh, Jesus, when we make like Forrest Gump, just the smallest faithful steps in any direction, and you find out that he's leading you in the footsteps of princes. How can you not get excited? We have to. We have to. Are we uh, pushed sometimes? Are, are we persecuted sometimes? Yeah, but we are a long ways from beaten. In fact, we're learning what it is to put this foot on that side of the devil's face. And I'm starting to enjoy it. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. Where is the temple? It's in Jerusalem. It's in Israel. All good things start there. Period. Bar none. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. For the temple faced the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. Now, let's not get confused with this. The east gate, of course, faces east. And water is coming from the south side, but it is flowing east. All of this mentioning of east here is important biblically. I want to summarize it for you in a single slide, if you don't mind. In Genesis 2.8, the garden was placed in the east. This is where man was placed, and he failed the test. He wasn't made in the garden. He was made somewhere else, and he was placed there. In Genesis 3:23, he's banished from the garden, banished on the east side. When Cain fails and, and murders and, and walks uh, out of the presence of God. In Genesis 4:16, he goes to the land of the east and sets up a city called Nod. In Genesis 11:14, men were moving east to the plain of Shinar, and they created a tower in rebellion to God. What direction were they going? In Genesis 13, 11, Lot chooses the direction east and the land to the east, and he chooses Sodom and Gomorrah for himself. Lot chose east. In Genesis 25, 5 through 6, you see Abraham's wife Keturah, and he gives a blessing to Isaac and then sends Keturah's sons off to the In Genesis 41, 6, when the uh, dreams of, of Joseph, or Joseph interprets dreams. A wind comes and it scorches crops. Do you know what direction it came from? In the Bible, east always has to do with men that are moving away from God. They're on the right road, but they're going the wrong direction. East is when God is in your rear view mirror and you have turned your back and you are going the wrong way. The direction east in the Bible is always about backslidden people. People that are lost. People that are in need of salvation, but they do not have it. But that takes us to something else pretty interesting. There is a hope mentioned throughout the word in the east. In Exodus twenty-seven thirteen, the courtyard to the entrance to the meeting place with God. 
It always faced east. In other words, God wanted the opening to be closest to those that were moving the wrong way so that they would have a way to come back. In Numbers 2, in verse 3, Judah camps on the east side. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, where the Messiah would come, he was always on the east side of the camp where the people had gone the furthest away from God so that they would meet men and women who praise God mightily, valiantly, And they would want to come back. In Deuteronomy 1, God speaks to Israel and it said that they are in the desert in the east. His word came to them while they were in the east. And then every year in December, for some strange reason, probably it was Augustus Caesar's birthday. But every year in December, Matthew 2 is read. And you find out that a star appeared in the And men came from the, and they came to Jesus. See, the Bible story is about men that are headed the wrong way. They've got God in their rearview mirror. They're going after what they want, and it's been that way since the garden. But he is always facing all that he does towards them that are furthest from him. He is looking for lost sons. He wants them to come. And because of that, He causes signs in the heavens. He causes whatever it takes so that men from the east will come back to the revelation at Jerusalem. That's what he wants. In fact, when we're talking about being a fountain to the nations, we have to first understand God is a fountain. And as we get into our Father in His light, we will see light. You start to care about people that are on the right road but headed the wrong way. You start to care about the things that God cares about. He's not only a fountain in Israel. He identifies Himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And He is, of course, the God of Jesus. That may surprise you to hear that, but the Bible says it many, many times. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is first and foremost an Israeli man, an Israeli king, a Messiah, the Messiah. And he has a God and Father. That Father is a fountain. And so the Son became a fountain. The fountain starts in Jerusalem. It starts in Israel, but it was always intended to flow to the east. It was always intended to flow to the lowest regions, the difficult regions, those that had been judged. As we go through the remainder of this passage, as we begin to look, notice that this river, this stream, it is flowing further and further eastward. And as it does, it even encounters regions that have been judged by God for centuries. And what happens to the water in this passage You're going to see that the further east it goes, the deeper it gets. Come on, somebody say the deeper it gets. The further it goes, it does not trickle down. It doesn't peter out. It actually gets deeper the further it goes. Do you know why? The anointing of God is stronger for those that are furthest from Him. He wants His lost sons. In Ezekiel 47, in verse 3, as the man went eastward, what direction? With a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was ankle deep. 
He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. Knee deep is deeper than ankle deep. One thousand cubits, ankle deep. Two thousand cubits, knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. The water is getting deeper the further we go to the direction of lost man. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a... It was a... Where are the parsons? It was a... That I could not cross. Because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. As the water from the fountain of God moved eastward, it became a river. Man, you need to keep that word. Say it. River. Keep that word in mind. It's going to come back into play as we go through this message. In verse 6, he asked me, son of man, do you see this? It's interesting how the angelic beings always want to make sure you're paying attention to what God's trying to show you. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and it goes down. Somebody say down. down. To the Arabah, when, where it enters the sea. The Arabah is the region of the Dead Sea. This water is flowing from God's throne all the way down into the desert, which is south and east of Jerusalem. It's going to the site of judgment where God pounded Sodom and Gomorrah straight into the earth, the lowest place on the surface of the planet today and still sinking because God is interested in those that are furthest from Him. He wants them. When it empties into the sea, the water becomes something miraculous happens. There is a transformation when the water that comes from God's throne touches someone that knows they need it. This fountain of God, this river of God, this spring of life flowed in the direction of the lost. But it started in Israel where the sons of God were. It flowed from God's throne on earth, which is Israel, but it moves to the areas of greatest judgment, the Arabah, Sodom and Gomorrah. When the fountain or the spring or the river got to the undrinkable salty water, it became sweet and fresh. Do you want undrinkable water or sweet and fresh water? It turns out that all mankind wants something this sweet and fresh. They just are not willing to do what it takes. Look at verse 9, the effects here. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So wherever the river flows, everything will live. Say, wherever the river flows. flows. It makes things live. You think you need different circumstances? No, you need more of the river of God in your life. You think that you, that person is beyond hope? No, they just need more of the river of God in their life. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engliam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Pick up in verse 12 in a serious way. 
Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Ezekiel's vision is shared by Jeremiah in the 17th chapter and we're not going to read it. Ezekiel's vision is revisited in Revelation 22 as the plan of God comes to completion. It turns out that the Bible story is about many things. It's about a father with his sons. It's about a, a groom with his bride. And it is also about a fountain under the throne of God that goes to all men and changes the earth. Revelation 22 and verse 1 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. See, it was a river in Ezekiel's vision, but it didn't start that way. It was ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep. When did it become a river? The further out it went. Do you want more love, more anointing, more of Him in your life? You might have to move eastward. You might have to care about what He cares about. You might have to set your heart on what His heart is set on. You might have to be like your father. And the more you are like your father, the more he will anoint you to do what he does. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops. How many crops? Of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. The revelation. This is not the revelation of the church. This is not the revelation of John the Apostle. This book is properly titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation that he received from his father and he made known by sending his angel, Jesus' angel, to John. The revelation of Jesus Christ ends with 12 crops of fruit and the nations being healed. The book of Revelation and the revelation that God gave Jesus Christ ends the culmination of it is when there are 12 crops and all of the nations are healed by eating what they have. This is all the result of the river of the water of life that flows from the fountain of Israel. The fountain of Israel is the fountain of life. The God of Israel is the fountain of life. This entire concept did not originate in the book of Revelation. It did not originate in the book of Ezekiel. It did not originate in Psalm 36 where we first read about it. The entire concept is founded in the Torah of God. God blesses 12 tribes to become springs. He blesses 12 crops that will feed the nations. He blesses 12 believing that in blessing those 12 they will become a blessing to the entire world. That forms a pattern Just like our core principles form a pattern. And it's a pattern that has to be adhered to because it's God's pattern. God wants something to be displayed to the rest of the world. He wants there to be a fountain to the nations. Turn with me to Exodus. You're going to be in chapter 15. And we're going to pick up in verse 22. 
Exodus 15:22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. Three days in the Bible, you're perfectly aware, is the distance between life and death. Three days in the Bible always triggers. There is either going to be the death of a baker or the life of a cupbearer. It is going to make the difference between life and death. Water literally is the difference between life and death after three days. How desperate would you be if you didn't have water bottles tonight? Maybe not that desperate. But if you sat in this chair for the next three days, you would become more desperate. If you were in a desert and you were traveling and you were carrying things, how desperate would you be? Sometimes desperation is the catalyst for people wanting the water of God. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Clearly here, Mara is Hebrew for bitter. The idea of bitter is not just that it tastes bad. It's that it's undrinkable water. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's a euphemism. It, it, it might be better to say it was poisonous. In verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. Say, the Lord showed Moses. Moses. That word is Yarah. It's Strong's number 3384. According to the theological workbook of the Older Testament, it means that he taught Moses. That's how that man translated it. He instructed him. He didn't just show him something. Moses was learning something about what he was doing. When the wood that Moses had been instructed about, was placed into the waters. The Hebrew says that it became sweet. If bitter is a Hebrew idiom that means undrinkable, like poisonous, sweet is an idiom that means fresh. Fresh like the water that Ezekiel saw. Fresh like the salty, nasty waters... But water from the throne of God was ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, became a river. And when it touched undrinkable water, salty water, it became fresh, drinkable water. Now we're connecting Moses seeing a cross, a tree, a piece of wood, receiving instruction about it. And it took the undrinkable water that would not give life and it made it sweet It made it fresh. We're making a connection between the very fountain of God that flows from His throne and His ultimate work to save humanity on a cross. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them. And there He tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, If you pay attention to His commands and keep all of His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees. Are you noticing that after the nation's water is turned sweet, after the nation is instructed and given a decree... 
after a singular man has a revelation about something that could be similar to the cross. Now the whole nation comes to something that is 12 springs of life-giving water. The Lord is a fountain of life. But there's more to it than the Lord being a fountain of life. Could we put Proverbs 10, 11 on the screen? You stay where you're at. Pay perfect attention to this. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But I thought the Lord was a mountain of life, a fountain of life. Does that make your mouth the Lord? No, it makes your mouth belonging to the Lord, though. See, the Lord is a fountain of, of life, and when your mouth becomes righteous, it becomes what the Lord is. It's not just about bringing people to the Lord, the fountain. It's about becoming a fountain for the Lord. It's not about Israel just getting drinkable water. It's about Israel becoming drinkable water for the rest of the world. They laid down a pattern for us, church. A pattern that we as dumb Gentiles have stumbled right into with excellency. Israel laid down the pattern of 12 springs that feed the world. And we as Gentiles have to become like that. We have to become springs that feed the world. It's not just your mouth that becomes a fountain of life. What's Proverbs 13, 14? The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. God is a fountain of life and your mouth becomes a fountain of life and the teachings He gives you become a fountain of life. Where does the fountain of life flow from? God's throne. Where is God's throne? In Israel. Every wise teaching you ever got came out of an Israeli book. Everything that you have ever been blessed by began with one people group and they laid down a pattern for us. Any wise thing that you have to say that is wise in God's eyes, He gave to Israel before He ever gave it to you. The Lord is a fountain of life, but He makes people to be exactly like Him. He is a Father and He makes sons that become fountains of life. Now, those of you that have been through the married teaching may recognize there's something more happening here. And I'm not going to explain it for those of you that haven't been through the married teaching. But let me just say that a fountain is like, like something that brings forth new water. It's almost like a production center for water. In the Bible, it has to do with your reproductive system. Something that brings life. How many palm trees were being watered? It turns out that that's the exact number of sons of, of Japheth, Shem, and Ham in Genesis 10. And God knew that there was a relationship between 12 springs... And 70 palm trees. He knew that if he did something special in 12 tribes, that it would touch the entire world. He knew that he gave us a book that they were the custodians of. He could touch every nation on the planet. The number of those palm trees is the nations. This is the basis of why in the one association we're trying to raise up 12 springs that will feed the 70 nations of the world. But I don't want you to take my word for it, and I don't want to teach on the numbers that are involved. I've done that many times before. I want you to go to John 4. 
When you find John 4, land on the seventh verse and shout out, I'm there. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, it's important for you to realize Samaritans were Jews that had been mixed with the nations of the East. They're no longer pure. They're no longer considered pure. A Samaritan is something in our eyes like being a half-step to a Gentile. Most Jews in the first century would consider it a whole step to being a Gentile. But I think if we're honest, it's more like a half-step. They at least had the Samaritan Pentateuch. They didn't keep it, but they had it. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is the sweet water of Elim. This is the fresh water of Ezekiel. This is the river of living water of Revelation. Jesus Christ is saying, I am in touch with something that comes from the very throne of God. I have it and you need it. If you knew what I had, you would be asking me for what I have. He's not saying that because he's God. He's saying that because he's an anointed Israeli man in touch with his father. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is God. But he laid aside equality with God. He took on human form. He humbled himself and became a servant. He operated as an anointed man. He had living water because he had a relationship with his Father who is the fountain of life. And what poured from the Father landed on Jesus. And Jesus could cause it to land on someone else. This sets a pattern for us. The God of Israel is a fountain. His throne is a fountain. He is offering her a drink of the living water of God. But there's even more happening than that. Look at verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Now, if he stopped there, I would understand. Lord, I want your living water. I want your living water for me, 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 me. But that's not all he says. It's all the church hears, but it's not all he says. Look at what he says, church. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What comes out of God's throne once it goes into you is supposed to cause the same thing from God's throne to come out of you. This is why the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. This is why the teachings of the righteous is a fountain of life. He's supposed to be enthroned in you. And he wants his sons in the east. It shouldn't have to flow from a throne in Israel if it flowed from a throne in Israel to the throne of your heart. Israel set you the example. Now you are supposed to be setting an example for the rest of the world. 
God wants his living water to flow out of your life to the judged regions, to the dark regions, to the salty regions. He wants to make them fresh. That's what he wants. And he wants to use you to do it. A few verses from now, Jesus affirms that salvation is from the Jews. In a few verses, this woman will become changed and begin telling everyone she knows about Jesus. In the book of Acts, Philip comes back here, as well as Peter and John. They come back to this Samaritan area, and the whole town sees revival. Where does all that begin? Well, you could say it all began with Jesus. But it's more accurate to say that when the living water that she ingested became a spring of living water in her, that's really where it started. Is there something welling up in you to eternal life? But when you read that, you read it as welling up to your eternal life. No! It's welling up inside of you to flow out to eternal life for others. Nothing about the baptism in the Holy Ghost, nothing about it has to do with your eternal life. In fact, you can't receive the Holy Ghost unless you're born again. The Holy Ghost comes upon you, baptizes you, immerses you because you're in relationship with the Father, which means He now wants to employ you as His Son. Go be my throne. Go be my fountain. Go get my other sons. This is what happens when Pentecost comes. This is what happens when you drink from the fountain of God. This is why the Vincents went to Indonesia. It's why Buddy and Kim went to Peru. It's why we must go get his lost sons. We have to be a fountain to the nations. One encounter with the Son of God. Who was always drinking from the fountain of Israel's God. Turned this woman into a spring herself. And she became the spring that they saw. She still had to be taught. They still had to be discipled. So God sent Philip there to help turn the whole town around. And Philip, Philip needed help too. So God sent the apostles there. They weeded out of the Samaritans, people that were not fit to be God's fountain. Got rid of them. Peter looked right at one of them and said, Perhaps God will forgive you for having such a wicked thought in your heart. God cares about the purity of His fountain because when a righteous man gives way to the wicked, it's like a muddy spring or a polluted well. God's spring is never polluted. But that means that if you're going to be God's spring, you have to get rid of pollution. I want to move on to John 7. I want to go through some other principles that follow this as we begin to zero in on our actual point. The first verse of John 7 makes it clear that we are in the seventh feast of Israel called Sukkot. Which of course corresponds, we found out today, to our seventh core principle. Which was a fountain to the nations. So, just to help you here with a thesis. I'm saying that something about Sukkot has to do with being a fountain to the nations. Let's pick up in verse 37. On the last and the greatest day of the feast. Jesus stood up and with fairy faith in a mamby-pamby voice. Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice. If anyone is thirsty, let him go somewhere else and get a drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
See, a man that has tasted of the Lord, his mouth becomes a fountain. His teachings become a fountain. He doesn't just point them to the Lord. He represents the Lord for them. We've misunderstood this. We think Jesus is speaking just as as deity. And I'm not saying Jesus is not divine. Of course He is. But the truth is, is we're all supposed to be sons of God that can give people a drink of living water. In fact, the apostles don't show up in Samaria and say, Oh, you remember Jesus? That was really cool how He talked to one of you. If all of you can go get to Him personally, then you can also get a drink. What did they do? They laid their hands on them and they got filled with the Holy Ghost. They became springs themselves right then, right there. They tasted of the throne of God and the throne of God flowed out of them. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let me just be very honest. Why did he speak with a loud voice? He wanted everyone to hear him. He didn't whisper in a corner. It wasn't for an esoteric few. He wanted everybody to hear him. He wanted them to become what he is. And he wants the same thing in this room. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams, streams like rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this He meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You know, this last and greatest day of the feast, I'll probably butcher the Hebrew pronunciations, but we'll get close enough for Ohad to correct it later. Hoshana Rabbah, literally on the last day, the great day of the festival, The seventh day of Sukkot. This is a time period where a special Kohenim, a special Kohen, is carrying water. It's in a golden pitcher. He's at the pool of Shiloach, or we say Salome. He's pouring it into a basin at the foot of the altar, right next to other priests. That's what's occurring right here, right now. The people of Israel knew that this symbolized the rock HaKodesh. They knew that the river of water that flowed from God's throne was in actuality His Spirit. The rabbis associated the custom with Isaiah 12, which we'll read in a little while. But just to give you an idea, if you Google Moroccan Jews today and how they celebrate Sukkot, they still pour out water on Sukkot on top of their tabernacles that they built. Because they associate it still with the Ruach HaKodesh being poured from the throne. Another connection that is easy to make is on this last and greatest day, and this is probably the worst of the words I'll butcher, Simchat Beit HaShoava. This is the feast of the water drawing. Yeah, oh, I'd like that. It is the ceremony of the water drawing on tabernacles. And the coolest thing about this is the Talmud itself says this should be a religious ecstasy. This should be joy. It should be dancing and singing. It should be true joy. It goes on in the Jerusalem Talmud to describe a process where this golden jar actually pours into 12 earthen jars. How many? 
See, as the water is being poured from a golden vessel into those earthen vessels, Jesus cries out and he identifies himself as being tapped into the source of the fountain of Israel. If any man thirst, let him come and drink of what I'm drinking of. Drink of me. There's plenty to spare. It's flowing out of me in every direction. I'll never run out. I don't have to worry about being thirsty again. I'm tapped into the eternal source. Jesus identified himself as the source. But he also invited you to become a fountain. Bringing the waters of Elim, the river of Ezekiel, and the living water of the book of Revelation to every other person in the world. He didn't say, come get filled with the Spirit so that you'll be filled with the Spirit. He said He will become in you streams of living water welling up. See, we've even managed to turn the baptism in the Holy Ghost into a self-centric ideal. We've turned it into, well, I will be blessed. No, the whole point is that you become like your Father and your water flows in the same direction the Father does, bringing life everywhere it goes. To get this into true perspective, we need to look back into the foundation of the Word. We need to look back into the Torah of God. I, I have a fairly complicated thing, so I summarized it into a slide for you. This slide is a summary of Numbers 29. In Numbers 29, I have listed for you what is occurring on the seven days. And the seventh being the day that Jesus cried out of Sukkot. On day one, which would be the 15th of Tishri, 13 bulls are offered as a burnt offering. On day two, you can see 12 bulls. On day three, eleven. On day four, ten. On day five, nine. On day six, eight. On day seven, seven are. I've been teaching this for years. And I had no idea that the Talmud said it just bluntly, plainly. I found it today of all days. Rabbi Eliezer said, to what do these 70 bulls correspond? To the nations. Tabernacles always had to do with God's Water being poured into 12 vessels for God's special presence given to His one nation affecting every nation on the planet. In fact, this is why the minor prophets that I don't think are minor tell us that in the millennial reign, every nation will have to come and celebrate this feast. See, it's not just about Israel having tabernacled in the wilderness. It's not just about a temporary dwelling. It's about what can be put in that temporary dwelling. A throne of God, a son of God. And that temporary dwelling will give way to something that is eternal. And he doesn't just want it for the twelve. He wants it for every nation. Israel did this every year. They set a pattern for us. So our seventh core principle is that we must be a fountain to the nations. Not one nation. Not two nations. Not just this nation. Every nation. This becomes important when you realize the song that they're singing in the background. And what song? Well, the rabbis told us it was Isaiah 12. It's well attested to everywhere. It was sung on the seventh day of the feast during the water pouring ceremony during the time that Jesus cried out. Isaiah recorded the song for us. Would you like to hear it? Good, because it's Isaiah 12. In that day you will say, 
I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. This is what they were singing. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is what was being said. But do you know what? That's usually where Gentiles stop the quote. They sang the whole chapter. And, and I'm finding out that there's so many times we stop short. If you finish the chapter, it tells you what Sukkot is actually about. This group that God has become their salvation, this group that is tasting of the well of God, look what verse 4 says. In that day, do you know which day that day is? Seventh day of Sukkot. Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done, and proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Listen to it. Let this be known to all the world. Sukkot is about the salvation of the entire world. The salvation that came first to the sons of God, the twelve tribes. And then has flowed as far as even to us. So now that we have received it, looking at our older brother as a pattern, the salvation that's come to you must go from you to all the world. See, Jesus said to go into every nation and make disciples. The reason that you are here is because someone went. And now God is telling us as a church that we must walk in the Spirit in agreement with the Torah, which teaches us the culmination of God's plan is the salvation of the whole world. You can't just say, all I want to be is a doorkeeper in the house of God. That's pusillanimous. That's cowardly. It's unlike your father. Your father wants everyone to be saved. In fact... In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1, he says so. Timothy is being written to by his spiritual father, Paul, and he's reminding him of something. In fact, he starts it off with, I urge then. Come on now. Now, I I only have a couple natural sons here, a bunch of spiritual sons here. I can tell you when I see my natural sons that didn't make it here tonight, I will urge them to be in church. How soft do you think that urge will be? When Paul is talking to Timothy here, I don't think this is like a, I'd like you to do this. It's, it's a strong urging. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. How many does he want to be saved? But what about those people in Sodom and Gomorrah that he burned down into the earth? Yes, he wants all to be saved. Water will flow from his throne and it will restore even areas that have suffered judgment long ago. You say, but those people hate Israel. Those people hate the people of God. Yes, but if they're touched by the water of God, they won't. Today in this service, we had a spirit-filled Jew praying for Muslims. When we're in touch with our Father, we become like Him. What flows from Him flows from 
us. That's the point of Sukkot. He is a fountain. And at the completion of the feast, we are a fountain. The feast before Sukkot is Yom Kippur. You got to get right with God before you can be a fountain. Some of us struggle to be a fountain because we know how polluted our well is. Verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. See, Israel has set a pattern for being a fountain of living water. They are like 12 springs to the world. You are holding their work in your hands. An Israeli king, the Messiah, also showed you how to become a spring to the world. This passage is written by a Jewish, Israeli apostle who anguished over his own people. He anguished over them. Salvation began in Israel at God's throne. Salvation must go to every nation on earth, but it also must return to the source in Israel. Let's put Zechariah 13.1 on the screen. On that day. Somebody say that day. day. On that day. By the way, this is the same book that tells us we're going to experience Sukkot and every, uh, every nation in the world is coming to Israel. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. You say it already happened. Oh, I agree. It happened for a few. How many times have you had to have your spring reopened? Tell me, do you have as much zeal today as the week you got baptized in the Holy Ghost? You share the gospel as many times this month as you did the month you got saved? So it already happened for them. Trust me, that's not what Zachariah is talking about. I can prove that, but I don't even think it's necessary. Instead, let's go to Joel 3.18. In Joel 3.18, in that day, sounds like we're talking about the same day, doesn't it? The mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom a desert waste because violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. Now, friends, if that happened in the first century, then you have to ask why Jerusalem was not inhabited after the first century for so long. Of course it didn't, but I don't want to debate eschatology tonight because it would be embarrassing as you lose. What I want to say to you, is that God still wants to open a fountain in Israel. There was a fountain there, yes. There is a fountain there, yes. But it's not opened in a way that has cleansed all of Judah. It's not opened in a way that has cleansed all impurity. And it's going to. And all Israel will be saved. You know, when I was thinking about this, something hit me. And we're at the hour mark, so I'll start to wind this down. But I don't want to miss this for you. I thought, you know, 
the whole idea that everything was done in the first century, you know, and because it was all done in the first, and there's only a select, small, small group of scholars that think that. I'm going to stop arguing about whether it was done in the first century. Of course, salvation came to Israel in the first century. Of course, there was a spring open in the first century. That's really not the problem. The problem is not did something start in the first century. The problem is, is it wasn't brought to completion. So I started thinking about the, the Torah today. You know, the Torah is the answer to our problems. And I stumbled across a familiar passage that I've never read this way. And I put it together with what I heard Justin Treister preaching about. This is Genesis 26, starting in verse 12. Say, there when you are there. Isaac planted crops. Isaac is the promised son that would become Israel. Isaac is the uh, patriarch of Israel. Isaac planted crops in the land. And that same year reaped a hundredfold. Sounds like the man's got a spring going on, doesn't he? Because the Lord blessed him, the man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. Sound like, man, he's experiencing, I don't know, a first century blessing. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Hey, are Philistines Jews? Oh, that's right. Philistines are Gentiles. So the Jews were being so blessed that Gentiles became envious. I wish they had read Romans 11. Mm, When written yet. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling with earth. Who stopped up the Israeli well? Are you sure they didn't just reject their well and stop it up? See, what we are blaming on the first century descendants of Israel saying, oh, their well got stopped up because they rejected Messiah. Well, they didn't all reject Messiah. You wouldn't have a newer testament. Who has stopped up the well for 2,000 years? Gentiles. Do you know why? We haven't been the fountain that our father and their father is. And because of it, if we say we have a revelation that they don't have, but we don't act like the father does, it stops up the well for them. For 1,900 years, a clear line between bad Christian theology, bad Christian behavior can be drawn all the way to the present that today obscures Christ from His own people. Because we're saying we drank from the well, but we don't act like men who have drunk from the well. Who stopped up the well in Isaac's day? Gentiles. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You've become too powerful for us. Every one of the European nations threw Jews out of it at some point. You heard Justin speak about that. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that hadn't been dug in the time of his father. You mean the Gentiles didn't reopen the wells for him? Now, if they just quit filling them with earth, he could open them himself. Isaac is a son of God. If his well got stopped up, God will help him unstop it if we just kind of get out of the way. Now, I'm not talking about not witnessing to our Israeli brothers. I'm talking about not being a damaging witness to them. I'm talking about how about 
we let people see us flowing with living water and set some of the well-stopping material aside. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. I can't tell you how clear this type is to me. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. I'm here to tell you the wells will reopen in Israel. And they will have the same name, the same quality, the same character, the same substance, the same life-giving flow that the first century had. Do you know why? It started in Israel and it will finish there. Now there is a difference. What started in Israel went to every nation of the world. It's now our job to reach every nation of the world and tell them to go back to Israel. Do you see? It's, it's the same plan. It's just in reverse. Now, the thing is, is God's word declares that every nation is going to Israel, but it's not to bless them. It, it is to surround Israel. That's, I will not be a part of that, and I hope you won't either. In every nation, from Indonesia to Peru to every nation that we encounter, we're going to teach people to favor Israel. It's not only our sixth core principle, it's God's core principle. And Israel becoming a fountain to the world has taught us to become a fountain to the world. And when we're done with every nation on the planet, then people from every nation on the planet will go to Israel and we will make up God's throne together. But it will not be without the first spring. You know, as I thought about this, I thought Justin did a good job Sunday explaining how Gentiles have stopped up wells for Israel. I thought Ohad gave us good instruction about how if we shine with the holiness of the Lord, the problem will take care of itself. Then I began to think about something. As a Gentile, I was thinking about who I could think of that was really representative of Gentiles, like us. As a Gentile, I didn't even know that there was a well. I had to read an Israeli book to find out. This made me think of Genesis twenty-one nineteen. Could you put it on the screen? Then God opened her eyes. By the way, this is Hagar. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, which, by the way, saved his life. Many of us were walking around and had no idea there was even a well there. And God had to open our eyes. You know what the difference between us and the Jewish nation actually is when it comes down to it? It's Genesis 21:33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba at the well. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. The reason we favored Israel last week, this week, and every week thereafter is because Abraham planted a tree that marked the well for all eternity. It was Beersheba, the well of the seven, the well of the oath, the well of the covenant. The descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob maintained salvation so that the rest of the world could learn about the fountain of life that is our God. We owe it to bring what was given to us to every nation on the planet. But Romans says we owe it first to the Jew, then the Gentile. Now, why would we owe it first to the Jew? Because that's where we got the water in the first place. It belongs to them. Okay, that shouldn't be complicated for anyone. As I thought about this, though, 
I realized that I was in the Gentile group that didn't even know that there was a well. I had to have my eyes open. I was like, I'm dying and there's water right here. And that I owed it to to the Lord and the Lord's people who became a marker for where the water was. I owed it to them to begin praying something. And I want you to know my favorite prayer in all the Bible is one more time. One more time, Lord. I... I have no problem believing that he can do something one more time. I I have to summon the courage to believe he'll do it through me again. And while I was thinking about that, I came to Judges 15, 19, which is our last scripture for the evening. It occurred to me that Israel is very much like Samson. We're going to be a fountain to all nations, but we're going to teach all nations to bless and favor Israel. Judges 15, 19. Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. What has Samson been doing? Fighting with Philistines. He was fighting with Philistines until he was too exhausted to go forward and he thought he was going to die. He needed water. This reminds me of Israel. For 1,900 years, they've been being given a hard time by the Gentile nations, and now they just need water. Water that's theirs. Water that comes from their father and now our father as well. Then God opened up a hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, what's your Bible say? His strength? In Hebrew, it's his ruach. The spirit returned and he revived. Do you know what I'm praying for Israel? That they're thirsty for their own Sukkot feast. That they see us experiencing something that reminds them of what has always been theirs. That they cry out to the Lord and the spirit of Israel returns. And they revive. So the spring was called in Hakor, and it's still there in Lehi. In Hakor means fountain for him who cries. Why at LCM is it a core principle that we're a fountain to the nations? Because Israel was a fountain to us. And we learned from them that the point of being blessed is to be a blessing to every nation on earth, including the original people of God. Why do we have to be a fountain? It's the only reason that he filled you. And maybe it's the only way you'll ever overflow. See, when you store your manna, when you steal your waters, they go back to being bitter. How do you get bitter water to become sweet? You're going to have to throw a piece of wood that you've been instructed about right into it. Have your waters become stagnant? Have they become stilled? Have you forgotten that you lost your life in Christ and now you only live to give His life to others? Have you forgotten that? Because if you've forgotten that, then we might need Moses, another Israeli, to come and remind us that he was instructed about how to make water sweet again. You're going to have to come to springs. You're going to have to be springs. You're going to have to let it flow right out of you to the nations of the world. Or you can't be blessed. 
He only blesses a people so that they can be a blessing to others. That's the only reason. I know that from reading about my Israeli brother. Samson was exhausted and he was in need of a well. He had been fighting with Gentiles to the point that he thought he would die. And then God unstopped the well, just like he did for Isaac. He'll do it for Israel again. But tonight, can we learn from what happened to Israel? Has something been throwing dirt in your well? Have you not been the fountain that you should be? Do we need to read the cross of Christ? Go through a true Passover so you can arrive at a true Pentecost and head all the way to Shavuot. Is that what you need? We were singing in here earlier about the Spirit breaking out. But I think you think He has to break out of something up there to come to you. And the truth is, He's supposed to be a well of living water in you. And it is your earth that is holding Him back. How many times did He tell you to speak and you didn't speak? How many times did He tell you to act and you didn't act? How many times did He want His life-giving flow to go from the throne of your heart into the desert regions of somebody's life and you didn't deem it important? My prayer for Israel and my prayer for my brother Gentiles that have been adopted is that we would practice our in hakor. We would ask Him to be a fountain to us because we are crying out and renew us as a fountain to others. We're going to pray. You're going to encounter the fountain of Israel. That's who our God is. You're going to encounter His living water. But the purpose is that you become what He is, a fountain to the nation. If your prayer is, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord, you're missing the point. The prayer really has to be, Lord, empower me to bless them. Lord, give me the courage to reach them. Lord, they've gone so far east. And I want to be a star that rises, that they can see and follow me back to you. Tonight, we're going to pray for the unstopping of Israel's well, but I'm going to tell you it'll be ineffective in your heart if your well's not unstopped first. So you love the Lord. I know you do. You feel loved by the Lord, and I know that that's true. I know that's true of virtually every person in this room. There's a few deniers, but the thing is, is God knows right where they're at. The issue is not, do you feel blessed by the Lord? The issue is not, do you know He loves you and do you love Him? The issue is, are you a fountain like Him? You are supposed to be a source of salvation to people. Like, you should be able to walk in somewhere that is dead and life happen around you. It's not just the Vincent's job. It's not the Brasso's job. It's not the P. Rose job. It's every person that ever truly drank of Jesus. He said you would never thirst again. And the water he gave you would become in you springs welling up to eternal life. A few hours with a Samaritan woman and her whole town got saved. How many years have you spent with Jesus? 
Can we say that there's room to unstop our wells tonight? When you get your, your well unstopped, can you say that we want to pray for the nation that taught us this? Yeah. Would you stand to your feet? Could you put on the screen, before we turn off those lights, the slide that is the seven core principles in the Feast of Israel? On the right, you see the example set in the Word. On the left, you see the example that God has taught us through 17 years of what this looks like played out in our lives right here, right now. If you truly have a transformed life, then you have a full price attitude. If you have a transformed life and a full price attitude, all you want is your family to function for God under His mezuzah, His banner. You will maintain a fiery faith that shows up in your feet. You will not proclaim the acceptable gospel, the tame gospel, or the fairy gospel. You will proclaim the full gospel which absolutely, totally must include favoring Israel. And then you become a fountain, not just to Israel, but to every nation on earth. That's who LCM is. When you walk through those doors, that's what you're signing up for. We will work with all of our heart to help you become that. If that is not what you want to be, then you're on the wrong flight. This was an all-aboard series because we want every person all aboard for every one of those principles. It's our hope that that's your desire. Let's begin to pray. Father, we thank you. We're asking, Lord, that you forgive us for stopping up our own wells. That you would forgive us for not caring that the wells of Israel have Philistine earth in them. Lord, we know that the answer is to get back to your throne, to re-wet our souls and become a fountain for others. Help us in here tonight to recapture the fountain of Your heart that we might reflect You as Your sons to all men. In the name of Jesus, we come before You and say, Move on us.